For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Earth Day is coming up on April 22nd. Now, of course, we should be thinking about protecting and respecting our environment every day, right? But the Earth Day movement does mean something special. Do you guys know the story? I actually researched its origins for my book, Rise and Resist. So I thought I'd start by just reading you a couple of paragraphs for context. It's from page 80 in a chapter called Greenpeace. Key to the birth of the modern environmental movement, the first Earth Day happened in the United States on the 22nd of April 1970, instigated by a 53-year-old Democrat senator. Gaylord Nelson was a progressive type. As governor of Wisconsin in the early 60s, he'd overseen the purchase of a million acres of wetlands and wildlife habitat for the creation of a state park, funded by a tax on cigarettes. He'd tried to galvanise President Kennedy on the subject of the environment back then, but he'd missed his moment. Not that JFK was immune. The president had read Rachel Carson's influential eco-book, Silent Spring, and in the summer of 1962, he'd appointed a committee to look into pesticides. But by the following November, he was dead, and within a few months, so was Carson. Changes in the law made it a little bit harder for chemical companies to market harmful products, but broader environmental protections were very slow in coming. By 1970, some parts of Los Angeles were so polluted that simply breathing was like smoking two packs a day. The American Eagle was on the verge of extinction. The Cuyahoga River in Cleveland oozed rather than flowed. It stank and bubbled like a cauldron. But that wasn't the only river in the country liable to burst into flames. The idea of Earth Day sparked when Nelson read an article about the anti-Vietnam War teach-ins that were happening at the end of the 60s. I put the magazine down, he recalled, and I said, this is it. We need to start a nationwide grassroots demonstration on behalf of Mother Earth. Today, the Earth Day network works year-round to solve climate change and plastic pollution and protect nature. And this is from the Earth Day website, which you can find at www.earthday.org. The unprecedented global destruction and rapid reduction of plant life and wildlife populations are directly linked to causes driven by human activity. Climate change, deforestation, habitat loss, trafficking and poaching, unsustainable agriculture, pollution and pesticides, to name a few. The impacts are far-reaching. If we don't act now, extinction may be humanity's most enduring legacy. All living things have an intrinsic value and each plays a unique role in the complex web of life. We must work together to protect endangered and threatened species. Or bees, coral reefs, elephants, giraffes, insects, whales and more could be gone. It can be quite heavy, right, talking about these things, but 
We need to act urgently. I mean, this is life and death stuff for the human race and for our fellow animal species. However, doom and gloom doesn't help anyone. You probably know that I'm on a bit of a mission to empower by telling positive, inspiring stories that can help us all make change. So for this podcast, I wanted to interview an eco-warrior who brings a positive take to this whole thing, who dedicates her work to saving Mother Earth, but in a very inspiring and inviting way, who makes making a difference accessible. She is Natalie Isaacs, founder of One Million Women. This episode takes a bit of a departure from fashion. We mention it, but we look, we're just too busy talking about bigger things. And this is as big as it gets. Harnessing the collective power of womankind on behalf of Mother Earth. Australian activist Natalie Isaacs founded the One Million Women organisation to create a lifestyle revolution to fight climate change. Her story is so interesting. So in 2006, she was a cosmetics manufacturer blissfully unaware of the amount of plastic pollution she was creating, let alone what was happening with the climate. It was Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth, that woke her up. And you're going to find out what steps she took to change her own life and carbon footprint, and to inspire hundreds of thousands of other women to join her. As Nat says, this doesn't exclude men, of course, but women make something like 80% of the consumer decisions that affect a household's carbon footprint. So women really do have power. Nat believes in conscious consumerism and the cumulative impact of all the little everyday decisions that we make. And I'm sure you're going to find this conversation an empowering one, and it's going to make you feel good about joining the climate movement. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can find me, as usual, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Press. And we'll share some links to the One Million Women and Earth Day social media and websites. Let me know what you're going to do for Earth Day and how you're going to make a difference. Nat, I'm so excited that we finally got to have this interview because I've literally been hounding you. I know. For ages. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. I'm happy because One Million Women is one of the raddest organisations in Australia. I totally love it. What you do is absolutely brilliant and I can't wait to share your story with everyone. For those listening who might not know about One Million Women, what exactly is it and what does it do? So One Million Women, the the vision is to, I guess, build a lifestyle revolution to fight the climate crisis and to do it through the empowerment of women. And the goal is to be millions of women. I know that the name is One Million Women, but it really is about empowering millions of women across the planet to live with the least impact on the planet and to be a key solution in fighting the climate crisis. But that becomes a broader thing, doesn't it? I mean, you get involved in all kinds of environmental campaigning that links because these things are linked. So protecting the ocean from plastic, reducing waste, looking at food waste, looking at just living more lightly on the planet in general. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about how all those issues intersect? Well, all of them. All of those things that you just touched on sit under the umbrella of climate change. If everybody in the world lived like we do here in Australia, we would need four planets, not just the one that we have. And everything that we focus on about daily living, it is about how you live with the least impact on the planet, how through every 
choice you make, every dollar you spend or don't spend or invest or divest or everything you do shapes the kind of world that you want to live in. Talk a bit about conscious consumerism. Wardrobe crisis begins in fashion. Mm. And fashion, as we know, is a big polluter and it's very wasteful. I mean, it's not exactly a clean business across the board. So if we come at the ethical fashion conversation, I think we often like to think Mm. conscious consumerism, that's the solution. Mm. Buy a bit better. First of all, is that even possible? But what does... Absolutely. Oh, you think... I was going to say, how would you define it? What does conscious consumerism mean to you? Well, I think it is understanding the concept that less is actually more. And particularly in places, affluent societies like we have here in Australia, that our happiness seems to be defined by how much stuff we have. And it feels like, you know, the more things we have, the happier we'll be. And it's this misguided belief, really, because it actually doesn't make you happier. It just means you have a lot more stuff. And maybe makes you more stressed and more miserable. Oh, Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that this idea that, in fact, less does give you more. I remember when I got the point, that point. I mean, I've been having epiphanies ever since I had my first on climate change itself and that we are very powerful as individuals and as a collective through everything we do. And when I got the point that actually less in my life meant more, it gave me this extraordinary feeling of freedom. It was almost uncontrollable excitement that I got that point. I like it. And that, you know, take a breath before you buy something and ask yourself, do I really need it? Where does the freedom and the feeling of jubilance come from when you think that you're going to... I don't know, take on this ethos or this living mantra of less is more. Where does it come from? Because the obvious thing is, okay, clutter. It's easier to find stuff if you have less clutter. Your brain can be a bit clearer to think, perhaps. You have more time, freed up from shopping to focus on changing the world. Okay, there's a few things. But for you, where does it come from, that power of less is more? Well, it comes from my heart. I'm not sure whether I answered that question properly. But it's all driven from this love of Earth, this love of our planet. And if we all loved our planet and our earth like we do our children and our families and our friends, I think we would look at this in a completely different light. It's so easy not to see that because we live in the city and when you read about it, it doesn't have the same impact. And even down to if you don't see a forest because you're not walking in one or if your parks have been removed so you don't normally see trees around your house or overdevelopments push them out, you know, if you don't see nature around you, it can be harder to connect with it. Oh, totally. And 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 then harder to protect it. Absolutely. And that is very much um, my story because... Before I started One Million Women, I used to be a cosmetics manufacturer. And um, and I say this a lot, that my life was all about overpackaging and about how you get someone's product off the shelf so I can get mine on. I even had microbeads in a couple of my products. Like I was totally disconnected to this love of earth. And funny that as well, because that's the beauty industry where beauty is defined in a completely different way, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And but um, what happened? Well, what happened was something really simple and I got my electricity consumption down by 20%. And when I did that, and I know that so at that, home 
at home. And I know that's, you know, electricity, that's boring, but it was the most powerful thing I had ever done to connect with this issue because I was disconnected for whatever reason. And then I guess over the course of a year, things were coming my way and the media got the point on climate change. There was a lot of touch points. Because this was around after Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth was in the news. That's right. So sort of 2007-ish around then? That's right, 2007. And An Inconvenient Truth really did bring climate change and the issues into the mainstream and where people could understand it wasn't the complexity that was surrounding what climate change was all about. And when you don't know enough about something, it's easier to do nothing. But the media, I think, were really responsible for helping the general public understand because they were getting the point too. So they were writing about it because they were understanding it more. So how did then you, looking at that and then thinking you could reduce your own energy consumption linked with nature? I thought, I'm going to stop saying to myself, what can one individual do anyway? You know, it's... I'm powerless. It hasn't change got to happen from governments when they put in policies. Well, yes, we'll be waiting forever for that. Uh, So when I thought, just stop it, just stop and do something. And I made this effort to get my electricity consumption down. So start with one manageable, practical thing. But what happens with empowerment is that you do one thing and let me tell you it was the easiest thing it was the low-hanging fruit to get your electricity consumption down you just it's make really a phone call you <laughs> well you just well no that's to switch to green so i'm wrong yeah that's to switch to green to reduce it is literally being more vigilant around the house and seeing how the energy flows, where which lights are left on, do you really need to use the dryer, do, all those sorts of things. But when I saw the bill and I actually saw I'd reduced electricity by the pollution reduction and I'd saved money, that's when I thought, okay, I'm actually powerful. That was where I thought, okay, what next? And I thought food waste. So I got our household food waste down by something crazy, like 80%. And then I thought, what's next? And I stopped over consuming and just took this breath before I bought something. And, And so waste became a theme and I started doing all this in my life. And before I knew it, I was changing the whole way I lived. And I don't know, as you do, I thought there must be millions and millions of other women out there like I was disengaged for whatever reason. If I could just tell them my story, if I could just say, look, I did this and got this result and then did this and then did this and now look at me, I'm sure I'd get a million women to say, I'm going to do that too. And it was that I just felt that I had started a cosmetics company and I did it for 24 years and I thought the learnings from that I could take in you know I didn't know much about climate change and I didn't know much about how to start a movement well actually I knew nothing I did know nothing but I had this story that I wanted to tell so I thought that would be enough and so I went about and, and started One Million Women. But how did you begin? So did you begin by telling your friends? I did surround myself with some amazing women who really came with me along the journey. And, uh, and it was like 
around the kitchen table where we sat and talked about this idea and how, you know, what did it really mean? How did I really change the way I lived? It was about doing a bite-sized action with a real result. And then that moved me along and that built my confidence and that built my voice. And, and so we thought that we need to replicate that because that's what can change behavior. And so I had a lot of support from women everywhere. And the reason we made it, you know, a women's movement was because I was doing all this research in what was out there. And there wasn't anything that spoke to to women. And and not that the problem falls on women's shoulders. It's more about harnessing the strengths of women. And women make 85% of the consumer decisions that affect the household's carbon footprint. We are natural networkers. There was so many reasons why this needed to be a women's movement. And also women and children in developing countries are the most vulnerable to climate change. So everything pointed to this this needs to be about women. And also, even now, so nearly 10 years later, we still don't hear enough women's voices in particularly the climate science conversation or the political discourse around climate change. Mm. We're still overwhelmingly hearing men in positions of power talk about these issues. And we do need to amplify women's voices in this space. Yeah, absolutely. And it is getting better. It is, definitely. But we need 50% women around the negotiate at any negotiating table when it comes to climate and when it comes to anything but we will create better climate solutions with women around the table so in 2009 you set up one million women i did and what was your aim then with the website and with are we even going to call it a movement at that point well the initiative what was your aim what did you hope to achieve with it i hoped to get a million women in six months and, and when you say get to do what? To join the community? Yeah. So, and so I created this website and we launched at Sydney Uni with about three or 400 people. And I had some fabulous ambassadors and, and so much support. The goal was you join up and you commit to cutting a ton of pollution out of your life within a year. And the website had, I think it was like 60 different ways in the, in different categories, you know, household waste, transport, clothing, shopping. And you committed and you went on and you chose things and you updated your progress. And that was really how One Me One began. It was a website but no social media. What it was is this word that I keep coming back to when I was thinking about your work is practical. And that's what's often missing from this conversation. So instead yeah. of being bombarded by a lot of hard to decipher, potentially off-putting, potentially dry for such an emotional subject, climate science, yeah. or news reports that seem to be speaking of, I don't know, political injustices, infighting, things happening on the other side of the world that we can't control. Here you've got practicality, which I love. That's what we need. Here's some tools. Try and use them. And also accountability because you sign up for the challenge. So then you've got to hold yourself accountable. Exactly. I did it that way because I actually didn't know any other way. One Million Women mirrored my journey of going from inaction to action. I thought other women could do the same and to show that if we did these small things and we all did them together, oh my goodness, what a change we could make. And 
you know, it was hard in those early days because we didn't have any money (laughs) and I really didn't actually understand how hard changing behavior is and because I had already done it like I oh my goodness I've just done this thing now I'm on to the axe now I'm on to the next and I thought right that's the way everyone's going to do it and I didn't realize how hard profound behavior change really is because you have to do it in this structured framework of our high consumption society and because I wasn't when I started One Million Women it wasn't just sign a petition and you're in you had to commit to cutting a ton of pollution so it wasn't an easy ask it was very much woman by woman by woman because we did just bowling up to everyone giving them the power of nat (laughs) yeah (laughs) i got corporates to take one million women on as a staff empowerment program that was very clever that was really good and we got very early on we got a grant from the federal office for women to run a breakfast series across the country so six breakfasts in six states in six months (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) but it really was I think going um, out there yeah we did it was we called it the women in climate change breakfast series and we we did that actually at the end of 2009 and I think that that really galvanized a community and it really showed that we were there for, I mean, it was only six months after we launched, but we were there for the long term and that this was really serious. That yeah, how it's beyond you live, saying, here's a website, have a look. Yeah, it was starting to get more community based, but it took us till I think the end of 2013 before we even brought in social media. But maybe that face-to-face beginning is what made it work so well. Yeah, well... Like that thing that didn't rely on saying social media will get us forward. Yeah. Because you had to do that that work of listening face-to-face to other people and hearing what they were experiencing. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that... um, I would like to say it was all part of the grand plan that we're going to do (laughs) this, this. but we didn't have a grand plan. And I did not understand movement building until I was in the movement building, you know, so it was learning as we went along and, and being a community where we listened to each other and did better the next time because of that. And, Mm. um, and, you know, we've, it's not easy. It's so not easy. But then how you live, it is the elephant in the room because it is much easier to march in the streets. And I know I, I say this a lot, but it is. It's easy to march in the streets and to sign petitions and to give to charities, which, you know, you cannot stop doing that. You have to use your voice. You have to put pressure on others. We have to keep doing that. But we can't do that and think that's it. We don't need to do any more to look after the planet. And also, as you said, the easy bit, it takes a bit of effort and a bit of commitment to turn up to a march, and I love it, but it takes a lot more effort to make that sacrifice. We always want to take on the thing we can do easily, which is I'm going to give up plastic bags because actually I don't even like them. I don't want them. Easy. It's very hard to give up something that you absolutely love. The thing I'm grappling with right now, and I have failed and will continue to, I expect, but I'm still thinking about it, is flying. Yeah, I know it's a hard one. I mean, obviously, that's because I want to fly. So it's the thing Mm. you don't want to do, isn't it, that we need to probably... (laughs) But if you you did it less... Absolutely. And no one is perfect. But I spend so much time thinking, won't drive, I'll walk. 
Mm. But then think nothing of getting on the plane. Mm. So it is that thing. It's a thing that we have to be brave yeah. if we want to be really, really make change. You're absolutely right. And the the scary thing is that climate change is waiting for no one. And it will... Well, it's happening now. It's happening this whole idea of, right now. The whole idea of let's plan for the future is a redundant idea. It's redundant. Mm. It's happening right now around us. And we as individuals and as citizens of the world, we have A, an obligation and B, the power. We have glorious power to act in our lives and rise above politics because we cannot just wait for politicians and for governments to put in policies. We can't wait. Mm. We have to get on with it. And there is so much that we can do. In this country, we are witnessing a rooftop solar revolution. We have 1.8 or 9, something like that, million households with solar. Um, and on it's their becoming roof. much cheaper, so it's becoming more accessible. And it's becoming part of mainstream. You know, when I started One Million Women, solar was a little bit fringe, you know. It was... When I started Ethical Fashion, it was fringe. Exactly. It's interesting. Yeah. And then and it does become the mainstream when people see the practicality, the possibility and the sense of it. Exactly. And the because carbon pollution is invisible, you can't see it, it's an easier thing to say, well, it's not affecting me really, so I can get on with what I'm doing. Or put and it in the basket for later. For later. A hard one. But, you know, that is changing. It is getting hotter. There are more ferocious cyclones and droughts and climate changes fueling that. And it's happening around us. And I think that when you see this connecting back to your plastics in the ocean and food waste and overconsumption, all of it brings with it an embedded carbon, all of it. And so all of it fuels this thing called climate change. So I saw One Mean Women as a campaign when we started I just want you to, to go onto the website and cut a ton of pollution and here are all the ways you can do it. We've grown into our movement and everything we do shapes the world. And so we do all these different campaigns, you know, leave it on the shelf, which is about overpackaging with fruit and veg or reducing food waste or being more energy efficient at home. And so if you think about collective power, in just in Australia, if a million households cut their electricity consumption by just 20%. As you did to begin with. Yeah. The first thing I did, we could shut down two coal-fired power stations. Wow, we really That's just us. Forget the government. So there is so much power if we all did it. A couple of the campaigns we haven't mentioned, one which is dear to my own heart is the whole Save the Reef idea. Mm. So you were instrumental in trying to say, how do we save the reef? Can we list it as heritage listed? Tell me yeah. about that. Well, the Great Barrier Reef was listed as World Heritage in 1984, I think. And on our watch, before our eyes, the Great Barrier Reef is dying. And a couple of years ago, the World Heritage Committee were considering putting it on the World Heritage in Danger list. And we were campaigning very hard to make that happen. So at and the tourism, time, of course, that would thought that would turn people away, didn't they? Yeah, that's, that's what right. they thought. Bad yeah. marketing message. Really? Never mind that essential for future of reef. And it it absolutely should have been. I 
do not understand how it did not get there. But we pushed for that and it didn't happen. And then they were considering it. They looked at it again last year and we did another big push. And I think we, we got you know nearly 80,000 signatures and we sent it to the World Heritage Committee. But when you don't win, where does it leave you in terms of how you feel about it? Do you think, all right, next time we can't win everything? Or do you think, oh, how do you feel? Well, um, that one we felt... Probably last year, we felt it was not going to be on the endangered list, but you cannot stop fighting for it. And we will never stop fighting. And so, yes, sometimes you you fall in a heap, but then you pick yourself up and on you go. And then other times you just keep your bits filled. And we, we've joined the Stop Adani Alliance because that mine, which will be the largest in the Southern Hemisphere, and if the pollution, if all the coal is dug up and the, the amount of pollution that that will put into the atmosphere. Madness. Yeah, madness. I would love to just ask a bit more about you, Nat, which I feel like you don't tell because I Googled and Googled and Googled <laughs> and all I could come up with was that you studied in London for a time. <laughs> So how did you go from aromatherapy? In fact, let's not even start there. What kind of kid were you? Oh, my goodness. I'm... Could you paint us a picture of little Nat? Oh, my goodness, little Nat. I haven't been asked that ever. Well, I think I was always a passionate child. I've always been passionate about something. But I don't know if I was, I was just a city kid. I lived in Brisbane and I have a beautiful family. Um, We went through the Brisbane flood, which was interesting because that was in 1974 and it went 10 foot over the roof of our house (gasps) and we lost everything. And yet I was still the happiest, most loved child. I know that it affected my mum and dad but the love that they showered onto their children and I didn't miss possessions or and so it really did show that that's all stuff. But I think that that's probably profoundly deep because then when you come later in life to be dealing so specifically in this space you can see there's something there even if you as a kid don't get it you know you can draw that line yeah and say actually I went through a a strange experience because it's not one that many people have been through. And my life was okay without all the stuff for a while. Yeah, that's right. Wow. uh, Yeah, that is, it's 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 really true. I mean, sometimes it takes great distance to be able to look back and say that is actually a shaping thing. Yeah, I I didn't ever think about it before. Mm. um, But yeah, I think so. And I've never really worried about material things, except I do remember that uh, when I was 18, or maybe I was a little older. I did choose to go out. With, I don't know if you want to put this in your podcast. You I know did I do choose now. to go out with a guy because he had a really nice car over <laughs> another guy who had a bomb. That makes you human, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, dear. But Were you into certain causes? Do you remember that no. as a teenager or? Into nothing. But I did love the beach and I did love the ocean, you know, I would go to the Gold Coast every weekend and and swimming in the ocean was just such a magnificent feeling. So I guess that really did start to define my sense of inner health and well-being, which I now see is just part of this bigger picture. 
absolutely part of it. We're all interconnected and we are interconnected with the planet. And I see that so clearly. But at the time, I left school and I went overseas and my dad said to me, well, you haven't gone to university and, you know, find something overseas and bring it back. And great a advice. business idea. It's great or, advice. And I thought... Well, not like, a man with a smart car. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But okay, a life Dad, choice. Yeah. Yeah. And, but when I was in London, and, and I was just doing the big backpack tour of, you know, the world, but when I was in London, I saw the body shop go from one shop to seven, and I loved the body shop. I loved the body and shop. And Anita Roddick, <gasps> I mean, that's a beautiful business. She pioneered this whole, that beauty is about well-being and it comes from within. I loved that idea. I loved that being truly and honestly beautiful cannot come from a cream. It has to come from how you're feeling inside. That's real beauty, you know. And so I got into aromatherapy over there, which was using the art of pure plant extracts to relax and for therapeutic reasons to, and to make you feel good. Anyway, I got really into it and I did courses in it and I came back to Australia with this grand idea that I was going to open up a franchise of shops called Natalie Jane, which was my middle name, and they were going to be Egyptian tombs or pyramids, <laughs> and they were going to have Because you'd sand. been to the British Museum, or because you'd been to Egypt. <laughs> no, neither, but because I, I loved it. frankincense, and frankincense, and I love the idea of, you know, essential oils being, yeah. you know, Nefertiti, and I just thought, that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, I came back to Australia and I didn't have any money and no one quite got my concept. So I couldn't raise any money. So I thought, well, I will find another way. So I decided to do a small range of about 10 products and I would start a party plan business. Right. And do it that way. Which is fascinating too, because that's actually community building and talking to yes, women. Yes, that's right. That's it. It's actually organising, but in commerce, but yeah. it, isn't it? Yeah, it shaped everything I did at Natalie, shaped me for one million women. We had massage oils and facial oils and, and skincare, but it was the philosophy behind it was that it all had to be massaged and it all had to increase blood flow and it was a bit fringe and bit hippie and no one could quite understand what I was trying to do. It was at a time when beauty, when you went to a beauty clinic, it was white walls. People wore white clinical looking yeah. gowns and yeah. everything was about being stiff and, and even clinical. the words, you know, beauty therapists, yeah. I think they say that in salons. I've never actually been to one. I'm the only person in fashion oh. who's never gotten into that. Well, um, it's weird of me, but it's true. Well, I like lipstick. Ah, I'm going and to take it. you to a beauty salon. That's what I've never, I've never been, I've never had a facial. Can you imagine? Yeah, we'll see. I'm not really into that stuff. Well, with Natalie, we used to do these incredible facials, and that was, but it was all about 
massage was the most important thing because yeah well you weren't about the botox no it was all about increasing the blood flow which increased the oxygen to the cells and tissues and that was rejuvenation and then things started to change and all of a sudden you saw relaxation centers open up and well-being places and beauty salons became bright and colorful and you know I used to say to people look honestly and I'd be massaging cream on their hands or something of mine and I'd go I have to tell you it'll make diddly shit if you buy my product or anyone else's (laughs) if you don't marry this up with inner health and beauty I promise you this isn't going to work and so I we used to do these big workshops and seminars about what does it mean to be honestly and truly beautiful? I got then seduced by the department stores to do fast brands filled with packaging, lots of crap and really cheap. And I sold my soul to the devil. But you may not have even known that that was a real problem. I, I say did. that because I had a label called Mrs Press that was a vintage-inspired women's wear label, quite small, based out of Sydney, and we made lovely, lovely clothes. Mm. I also made a very small line of candles and body lotions and soaps for David Jones. The hardest thing I ever did, ever. It was, I had no idea how to do it. But at the time, I had to buy a crazy number of boxes for these goddamn candles. And I can Mm. remember thinking, I can't buy them. I don't have the money to buy them. I don't need them. But I had to buy them or then there would have been no order. So I bought them. And then we had on a pallet in the back for so long, the stack of the boxes. Mm. And of course, when it didn't work, I had to trash the boxes. And all I could think was, that's money I'm putting in the bin. But now I think that's resources. I did recycle them. They were cardboard. But still, that's just a terrible waste of packaging rubbish, isn't it? That's right. And, and a stupid model of business oh, that you have to... And this is where... The shipping containers. We oh, had to pack and then the in the inners and the outers mm-hmm. and they've got it on the shelf and then the... I know. And then could you put some cellophane on the oh, candle because right. it would protect it? Yeah. And luckily I couldn't afford to and put the cellophane so I saved the plastic. Oh. <laughs> well, see, I would go to the buyer, all the buyers, and you would appreciate this because it'd probably be the same cycle for you and you'd go about December... To the buyers for the next year. What have you got next time? Yeah. That was my worst thing I ever heard because I'd say, what do you mean? Just killed me making this? Haven't <laughs> you got right. this? That's right. What do you mean? What have you got That's next right. time? I've got this. I've got all these boxes on the pallet. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. I would go with, the like, my Christmas lines and they'd be this beautiful. One of my brands was called No Ordinary Girl and the other one was called Living Is. These were my department store brands. And they were these beautiful brands for girls of empowerment and there were these little spell boxes about what friendship means and what love means and what it means to be passionate and what um, it means to be beautiful. And it was you'd open the box and it had these little spells and have a little friendship bracelet and a little mood ring or a little poem. Uh-oh. Or, Some junk to throw away. Well, more than that, I, it would all be beautiful, like really good. It'd be twenty nine ninety five, and and I'd go to the buyer, and the buyer would go, "I love it, Nat. Love it. Now, can you make it nine ninety five? And I'd be going, "And can you put? They they'll need to be in um, an acetate." you know thing to keep them in and then now the box love it but you need to put that into a plastic box and then that needs to be on an in a tray with so we can stand six up in a row and, the now, then you need to, and then you need the now the tray will need to be cling wrapped in and now that all needs to go in the box and then you go so from 29.95 of quality and no packaging to 9.95 
And so, at in what the end, point did you think this is madness, packaging-wise, or did you never? Did that come after you'd already finished it, the business? Well, it that all came closer to the end, and really, I was in business for twenty-four years. I should have only been in for the first ten, and I think that. The cosmetics industry is a really hard industry, and you know, if you say no to, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. The department store just go. Don't worry, that's fine. See you when you can. Yeah, and you've just lost half a million dollars because I think I'd lost forty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, so you just did mm. it. You just did it. What I learned from all of that is this thing that. Of this interconnectedness, and so what I did with Natalie, that my beautiful brand, and the others were beautiful too, but but the about that true beauty comes from within is just a microcosm of the bigger picture, and that if you look at that on a grand scale, the planet and us in it, that everything, everything is interconnected. Everything, and if one part of the chain falls apart or weakens, or then the whole thing can collapse. And you know, because that's how we should be living for ourselves. It's the beauty from within, but it's also our connectedness with this glorious earth. And so, when you then talk about the plastics in the ocean or food waste. One in five shopping bags of food gets wasted, or the overconsumption, or all of that. That all plays into the planet and how we're living on it. Living on it,、mm. and you cannot have infinite resources on a finite planet. It's impossible, and so we are feeling the pressures of this now. And the Earth, the Earth is telling us. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com/podcast. You can get in touch there, and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you, and you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say: first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode, and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that, because the more people who switch onto ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of "Because I Love You," which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you. Because I love you.